I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. Welcome back. So, as promised, we wanted to jump into some studies and digest the, uh, the the information found in some studies that are published in some some good journals. So, Jason, what have you brought to the table today for us to look at? Yeah, so we're going to look at the uh, ALPS study. Uh, this was uh, a study by Resuscitation Outcome Consortium. Um, Can you explain that for a second? Because I thought that was pretty interesting. What is Rock. What is? Yeah. So, so Rock, um, and I'm doing this off memory. So, Rock was an NIH grant, I believe, that was many, many, or several cities, uh, EMS that w- that sought to study several different things. So, they studied impedance threshold device. They studied uh, Alps that we're going to talk about today. They studied several other things. So, it was a conglomeration of services with some really good research teams attached to them with some of the hospitals that really had the ability, they had the call volume, they had the ability to collect the data, report the data, vet the data. Uh, And so, especially when it comes to resuscitation, of course, there's really not enough numbers of people uh, of patients or patients with whatever they're studying in one local area for it to be significant. So they sought to uh, kind of bring in several different groups to try to get those numbers up. Yeah. And from a researcher standpoint, man, I bet it'd be pretty cool to be part of that, be part of the rock. Yeah. Yeah. So, unfortunately, you know, so it's, uh, it kind of uh, served its purpose, ran its course. It has uh, since been dissolved, but they have, uh, really changed a lot of the ways that we've done things and some of the things that American Heart has recommended over the last several years is because of the work that Rock has done. Awesome. So on to ALPS. Yeah. So ALPS is a, is a really good paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, about the highest you can go uh, in as far as a hierarchy of publications. Uh, and, you know, so if, uh, you know, before you listen to this one, if you want to go back to the previous episode of how we review papers or some of the things that you need to look at, I think that'd be good to go back and refresh your memory on that. It's amiodarone, lidocaine, or placebo in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Yeah, which is better. Yeah. You have the old school guys that are always anecdotally, lidocaine worked just fine. Why you got to give that amio? And then you have all us, all us new new punks like what's lido (laughs) (laughs) procainamide yeah Yeah, so it does it matter which anti-arrhythmic you give and so that's what they that's what they sought to study so um as we look through this as we kind of said we start with the authors or this is where i start start with the authors um and i'll tell you just a couple uh, personal things here is that i was very impressed with these authors now these are authors are from rock so they're not uh, you know if you're familiar with rock these are not new authors but i can tell you that uh, i know several of these uh, personally i've spent a, a some time with several of them. Um, and actually the first author, Dr. Kudinchuk, he is the deputy medical director of Seattle, um, EMS or King County, excuse me, King County EMS. And, uh, so this guy, he's an, actually an E, uh, electrophysiologist, but uh, just a giant, uh, in the way that, uh, they do resuscitation in King County and actually has single-handedly, um, 
launched, became a launching point for the work that I'm doing uh, and get to do as far as with some of the data. So, so when I see his name, I'm immediately uh, brought into this. Oh yeah. Cause they pretty much set the bar for the rest of the world. They, they have. And when you actually dig into what they've done, it's legit and it hasn't been new. This has been 30 years of work that's been there. So the other ones um, and some of the people that he has worked with there, Tom Ray, Graham Nickel, um, and then uh, another one who, another person who we have spoken about on this uh, podcast before, uh, Dr. Joe Ornato, uh, who is the director of Richmond Ambulance Authority uh, in Richmond, Virginia, has written uh, many ACLS books and many parts in the ACLS. Um, and then Tom Offer Heidi, another giant in resuscitation. So as I look through this, you know, just from my background, I go, yes, these guys are not only. Um, passionate about resuscitation, but I know for a fact they go about it the right way. So just looking at that, I don't have any fears about uh, questioning um, motives or anything. So for me, this is, uh, you know, this is a good thing. So as we said before, you know, we kind of, you can kind of glance through the abstract if you want. And if you only have time to read an abstract, that's not a bad place to go. But let's actually go and actually look at the paper itself. So if we go first to the background, they do a really good job of explaining about where we have arrived. You know, we know that uh, antiarrhythmics, you know, some of the stuff that was published even back as far as 1999 by Dr. Kudinchuk as far as amiodarone, we know that there is, or we have seen a benefit to antiarrhythmics being given um, in the pre-hospital setting. Now they they quote, um, you know, about 300,000 cardiac arrests. We know now that it's actually probably more closer to 400,000. Uh, cardiac arrest. So, so they're even, you know, they're stating the problem, do a really good job. This isn't just, um, you know, this isn't uh, the uh, office um, where they're doing the, the rabies run, you know, and five people a year <laughs> die, you know, in the United States from rabies. <laughs> like, okay, that's terrible. I mean, that's, that's terrible, but yeah, uh, why are you laughing? You know, from 400,000 to five, <laughs> I think we should probably study the one that's 400,000. So, oh yeah. Um, you know, it's it's changed over the years, and I know uh, for anybody listening to this that's been practicing, you know, way back in the 1900s, like like some of us know that when in about the year 2000 is when the American Heart changed from lidocaine to amiodarone. Uh, in 2000 was the t was the first time that they put those those standards in. So many of us, uh, you know, are familiar with lidocaine and switched to amiodarone. And I can tell you, I don't remember anything other than, oh, these are the new algorithms for American Heart. And I don't remember, you know, seeing any of those studies that say, you know, we should switch uh, to amiodarone. So, so, but we do know that, uh, that we do need to give an antiarrhythmic in cardiac arrest, or that's what we have known forever. So they just sought to say, well, does it matter if they get amiodarone or lidocaine, or does it matter if they don't get one at all? And so that's how they um, sought to, uh, to do this. So it's not in this paper. You have to actually go back and look at what they submitted for their methods initially. And this is what they had. They, they wanted to get 3,000 patients. Because uh, in you that's know a pretty good number that that's a really good number, especially yeah. with cardiac arrest. If you think about the number of cardiac arrests you run um, to get three thousand patients that are going to be included in this study, 
Um, and remember, well, we'll talk about the inclusions in just a second, but for 3,000, this is just 3,000 cardiac arrest. So the inclusion is they have to have refractory V-fib or VTAC. And refractory V-fib, VTAC, they defined as anything one shock or greater if they stayed in V-fib, then they got included in this. Mm. So just think back to all the cardiac arrests, you show up, they're PEA, they're asystole, or they're V-fib, you shock them once and you get, and then you, they then they go into a uh, PEA or asystole. Those are excluded. So to get 3,000, they got to get 3,000 patients, they have to be in refractory V-fib or VTAC. So we're already getting pretty specific. Very here. specific. Very specific. And I know as you're listening to this, think of all the cardiac arrests you run that yeah. meet this criteria. It's pretty low. Mm -hmm. It's pretty low. But these, we know these are the ones that are likely going, or the hypothesis is these are the ones that benefit most um, from lidocaine um, or amiodarone. And of course, if they weren't in VFib, you wouldn't be giving this because it wouldn't be down the algorithm anyway. So, so they have to have um, IV, IO access. And they have to uh, administer either 450 milligrams of amio total or 180 milligrams of lidocaine total, or they're going to get a placebo. Now, we talked in the past about looking at these studies and the power of these studies. They could have gone back and looked at these in different charts. Uh, they could have said, well, Obviously, the patient's not going to know what they get, but we we shouldn't care if the paramedics know what they're going to give. No, that's a that's a bias. So they sought to remove the bias. So this was randomized, and it was double blinded. Mm -hmm. So um, the paramedic doesn't know what they're giving. Obviously, the patient doesn't know, but in fact, the hospital didn't know, which is another uh, interesting point. So then you're going to look at and the other method. You got to look at what are you what are they looking for? Well, they said their primary outcome that they're looking for is survival to discharge. Not, you, you have a pulse and you left the hospital. The secondary um, outcome is they're looking at neurologically intact. Mm. And, and, and real quick, while we're still talking about the methods here, it's incredibly impressive to me that they had 10 different sites participating all on the same page. Yeah. When you talk about coordination of effort and you're getting this specific with this many controls, you're randomized, double blinded at 10 different locations. That's impressive. Yeah, it's impressive and that's good. But this is actually brings up later for discussion is the difficulty of training all of those paramedics. And you have to make sure each paramedic does it the same way. So you have to take a paramedic in Seattle who's going to do it the exact same way that they do it in Dallas. Because if they don't do it the same, well, now you don't have consistency and your outcomes may not be statistically significant. So, you know, this is what, just switching gears a little bit, this is what happened in the primed trial with the mm -hmm. impedance threshold device. They had 8,000 paramedics they had to train, and a lot of paramedics deviated from the way that they, that they did things. So we cannot, that was one of the reasons that was a negative trial at the very beginning. And that was very easily missed by folks who did not read the methods. Exactly. You could just easily go right to the conclusion and boom, ITDs, there was no benefit. But if you really started digging, you started realizing, oh, well, 
they really shouldn't have included these patients or they really shouldn't have excluded these other ones. And when you rework that, the, the data actually came out a little bit different in favor of that. So yes, it's great to have 10 sites, but the number of paramedics, now you're talking about hundreds and thousands of, hundreds of paramedics, possibly yeah. thousands of paramedics, and the training and the consistency can be a little bit difficult, especially when there's no one there to observe them and they're just kind of doing it on their own. So the the way that they, you know, you have to classify um, neurologically intact and what you mean by that. Uh, you know, we, a lot of places use the cerebral performance, uh, the CPC um, category, the cerebral performance category or CPC. They use the modified Rankin score, which is a little bit more specific. It's not as broad. Um, so there's, it's a modified Rankin score is a zero to six. Essentially, zero is no symptoms, 100% neurologically intact, no problems. You probably drove yourself home from the hospital. Mm. A, a six is you're dead. Um, and so, of course, three is, you know, moderate disability. And, of course, you can, you can classify them a little bit more um, within there. So, further looking at, uh, um, at the methods. Yeah, it was in 10 different cities, but it was actually 55 different agencies. Wow. In those 10 different cities. And and again, that's just, it's incredibly impressive that they were able to pull this off. Yeah, yeah it, it really is. And it speaks to, can we do pre-hospital studies? Well, this is a very difficult study to manage. And I think it shows that it, that they were actually able to do it. So the next thing we got to look at is how do you consent the patient? Well, you can't really consent patients in cardiac arrest. And actually, this has been a sticking point over the years of is it ethically right to do a variable on a patient that is not the standard of care without their consent? Mm. This is where you have to have a thing like an IRB. And this is what they use. They actually used the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute to oversee this. And they, uh, the interesting thing there is they had all of the data. It wasn't, it wasn't scrubbed. It wasn't redacted. They got all of the data so they could actually look at that. Um, so they do this thing. We do this thing uh, in research. It's called um, an exception. So you can get an exception of informed consent when you're incapacitated. And so this was all vetted out through the IRB through or through each individual agency's IRB. Everything was good um, with that. And that's how they consented the patient. Um, okay. So, so now we move on to inclusions. Who, who are we including? Okay. So you had to be over 18, non-traumatic out of hospital cardiac arrest. And that's important because again, you arrest for different reasons. You die for different reasons. You, you don't become resuscitated. So it's not fair to take a gunshot wound or a stabbing or a car wreck uh, or something like that and say, oh, well, amiodarone or lidocaine didn't work. Well, that's not why you were arrested. So giving that's really not going <laughs> to, not going to matter. It's not going to change that. So you have to have IV or IO access. Um, and then exclusion is the patient had already received open label IV lidocaine or amiodarone. So open label is the opposite of blinded. So they know they got it at some other point in their life. They, you know, they had another, a, a previous arrest. Maybe they had a history of AFib and they got put on amio at some time. So if, if sometime they had given it because that could potentially uh, skew uh, the data. 
that maybe if you've had lidocaine in the past and you give amiodarone, perhaps it works, mm. um, you know, against or the, the, so it, it just wasn't consistent. So those patients got eliminated. And of course, the catch all hypersensitivity to the drug um, was an exclusion. So this is how they did it. So imagine the daunting task of this 10 cities, 55 different agencies. So what they did is they had these packets, essentially, you know, one, one, two, and three, and they were all packaged exactly the same. They each had three syringes, each had three milliliters of fluid inside that syringe, clear fluids, nothing labeled. There was no way that whoever was giving that medication could know exactly what they were giving. Hmm. Um, so the medication was provided, okay? It was provided by by a company, and that's important because you don't want to just, uh, oh, well, just have the guy on light duty just mix up, uh, I don't know, put some amio in one, lidocaine in another, and, um, you know, some, some normal saline, saline yeah. uh, in, a, in another, and just, you know, throw in an envelope and put it in the back of the truck. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, there's some people that would try to do their own little study like that, mm -hmm. but it's not consistent. So it had to be consistent. It had to be by a drug company so that could actually be, be monitored. So, uh, you know, there was a, um, amio lidocaine, each, 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 um, syringe had either 150 of amio, 60 of lidocaine, um, or normal saline. So that tells us that that's consistent. So that's a good method, randomized, double-blinded. They open it up. They don't see what they're giving. All of it, there's no, there's no. oh, Amio has five milliliters and lidocaine has three. It gives me a hint on what I'm giving. They all look exactly the same. So what that's telling me as I'm reading this is, this is a good trial. Mm. This is starting to eliminate any bias or, or as many biases as possible. So here's what they did. This was the treatment protocol. So after they failed one shock, so they arrived, they're in V-fib, they shock them once, and they're still in V-fib, now all of a sudden you are enrolled in the trial. Now, they, you can do things you know, later, you can exclude people later if you find out, you, know, you don't have to screen them to say, have you ever, has this patient ever gotten lidocaine or amiodarone in the past? They don't have to screen for that, they can exclude them later. So paramedics, V-fib, shock them once, boom, automatically they're in the trial. They open up a masked box. Um, when they got in the back of the truck, all drugs were given prior to arrival. So it wasn't a, oh, they left it at the hospital and then we're not sure if the hospital continued giving that medication or not. They had to give, a, they had to give all the medications before they got to the hospital. Um, and then even the, the trial drug was not disclosed to the hospital. Mm. So when they arrived, wow. they said, how much medication? Oh, they got three epis and they got this fluid. <laughs> Don't know what it is. And the hospitals were, the hospital was okay with that. The only time that it was unblinded was when it was an emergent safety issue. Mm. And if it was, only the physician was told. So the nurses didn't know, the other respiratory therapists, no other staff in the hospital knew what medication they got. All right, so if we compile all this together, the journal's great, the authors are respected, the background makes sense. Yeah, this is something that I wanna know about. I think it's important, it affects more than just me, it kinda of affects care. 
And then I look at the methods and the treatment protocol, man, this all just really seems to line up. You know, I may have a couple questions about how did you, how did you educate and how did you verify that everybody did it correctly? Those, you know, those can be talked about later, but now, now come the results. Hmm. So if we look at, you know, we look at the results after the trial, after trial's done. So this was from, from May, 2012 to December, 2015. So we've got a good amount of time. We wanted, we wanted um, 3,000 patients included. So overall, we have 38,000 arrests, 38,000 cardiac arrests between these 55 agencies. And this is kind of the breakdown. Of the 38,000, 31,000 were not eligible, <laughs> which, you know, it's probably not too far <laughs> off. So that's probably not too far off. You've got, um, you know, patients that are in PEA, you got patients that are asystole, uh, maybe they were younger than 18, maybe they were traumatic arrest. So all those um, got kicked out. So, you know, kind of rounding, rounding there. But uh, so the total potential eligible were 7,051 patients. That's a great, that's a great number to start at. Yeah. And then we're going to whittle it down from there. So 2,400 of them had to be excluded. Um, and this is pretty interesting. So we talked about the number of paramedics that it takes to train and whether or not they can do it consistently. 602 patients were, had a protocol violation. That's really not that many out of all these patients, but we would, you know, we would, might expect that with the clear number, the sheer number of paramedics that were involved with this, you know, they may have opened up two boxes. They may have found they were too opened up, so they couldn't verify specifically. Um, I don't really know, but for whatever reason, but this is important because if it's a protocol violation, there could be a bias there. Mm. So that's why you have an outside agency look at it because if you're inside, you go, oh, no, I had a save on that patient. That would be a really important patient to include. The people vetting it go, nope, it was not consistent. We have to throw that data out. So 602. Um, so there were 1,300 that had uh, VFVT terminated. Hey, that's great. We're, those are the ones we're glad to throw out of the yeah. out of the trial. Now they may not have all gotten a pulse back. It may have been v, uh, PEA or asystole, but likely some of those survived. So there were forty seven hundred trial kits opened by EMS, um, and of those, fourteen were excluded for for whatever reason. So that leaves us a total. So remember, they were looking for three thousand patients. They got forty six hundred and fifty three patients. Yeah, that's great. So even better than the than they expected, even after they had to exclude them. So this is the breakdown: uh, fifteen hundred and thirty nine of them got amiodarone. 1,541 got lidocaine, and 1,573 got the placebo. That is a great distribution. That means the randomized worked. You know, if you have, um, you know, 2,500 of them getting lidocaine and 100 of them getting amio, that wasn't a good randomization, mm. and it did not get randomized appropriately. So this tells us the randomization was good. What is typically the tolerance there for for it to be deemed a a good randomization? Yeah, I don't think there's. I mean, you really want fifty fifty. Uh, I don't know that there's necessarily. So and we'll just cut that out. But okay. I don't know. I don't know what the. I don't know if it's yeah. like well, it was. Yeah, that's just 60, my own 40 or, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know that there's not, I don't think there's necessarily a hard cutoff, but you would be able to say 
Um, there's too much bias there. Gotcha. So you if didn't randomize. If there's four things, you want it as close to 25% as possible. Absolutely. Okay, cool. And this was That's just for my own 30. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the other interesting thing is the exclusions were, ex were very close too. So there were fi 565 excluded in the AMIO group, uh, 548 excluded in the LIDO group and four, 514 excluded in the placebo group. So I know that's a lot of numbers we just threw out, but really what we're saying is it was randomized appropriately, a really good distribution between the three, amio, lidocaine, and placebo, about the same number were excluded. Um, so we come down to 970 total in the amiodarone group, 985 in the LIDO group, and 1,053 in the placebo group. For some reason, the placebo placebo group had less um, excluded. Don't really know why they don't. They didn't really publish that, but still, their distribution is good: nine seventy, nine eighty five, and ten fifty three. So we look at that and go, yes, that's that is statistically significant. So the outcome, this is actually pretty incredible. Um, we had out. They, I'm sorry, they had outcomes on ninety nine and a half percent of patients. Mm. That is, that's pretty good. Yeah. So if you only have them on half the patients, um, that's not good. So what this told us was the study was not only well done for EMS, but it was very well communicated with the hospitals so that the hospitals can in turn, number one, they'll accept a patient not knowing what antiarrhythmic they got. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. And then they are going to commit to providing the outcomes for all of the patients. Mm. And unless they're going to, and, and they, they said, oh, you know, that's a HIPAA violation. I can't do that. Then this study is sunk. <laughs> that's your favorite thing right yeah, there. I love yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if we look at this, we'll kind of go through this quickly because I know people, most people are just listening to this and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll share a link on where to actually um, see these tables. And these are pretty interesting to go through. But if we look at, let's look at the primary outcome. Remember primary outcome they were looking for was survival to discharge. Didn't matter at what level neurologically you were there. If you left the hospital alive, 24.4 patients with amio left the hospital alive. For lidocaine, 23.7% left the hospital alive. Mm, that's not that and far And interestingly off. enough, the placebo, 21% left the hospital Jeez. alive. Wow. And for the secondary um, endpoint, and I'll be honest with you, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really understand uh, study design as much, but for me, and we've talked about this before, I don't have a lot of experience with randomized prospective trials. I have no experience on how they design these. But I think for me personally, I care more about the secondary endpoint, not the primary. Because the secondary is, did you leave neurologically intact? And really, that's what we're going after. So the primary is good, but the secondary uh, for amiodarone, 18.8% left neurologically intact. In, lidoc in the lidocaine group, 17 and a half, not too far off, and the placebo, 16.6% left neurologically intact. Man, those, are, those aren't that far apart. No. In fact, if you look at just ROSC rates, um, amiodarone, 35.9%, placebo, 39.7%. Jeez. Wow. So, so those are, you know, those are pretty interesting and you can look through and, and even the modified rank and score, they were all identical, five, 5.1, 5.2. 
Um, and even in the, they were all two um, in the secondary. So, so these are, you know, these are pretty interesting. Now, these are the, the big analysis of, you know, the percentage of survival, but let's, let's now go, let's go to the discussion. So that's, those are the, um, those are the results. So let, let me, let me just actually uh, read the specific results that even this, uh, that this study says. So looking at all these, um, you know, these statistics, these, these numbers, you can go, and I'm going to encourage you to go actually look at this paper and see that this was statistically significant. Um, so let me just let me just tell you what the outcomes were, the results, uh, and the conclusion from the author, authors of this paper. So they said overall, neither amiodarone nor lidocaine resulted in a significantly higher rate of survival or favorable neurological outcomes than the rate with placebo among patients without a hospital cardiac arrest due to initial shock, uh, shock refractory V-fib or VT. So that's, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I don't think that that was necessarily what the hypothesis was. So that then brings us to the, what do we do with that? I mean, what, Brandon, what do you, as you hear that, I mean, what do you, what are your initial? It makes me wonder why we're even doing it. So essentially, to me, it doesn't sound like there's any significance on either side. It doesn't, it, it makes me wonder, why are we doing either one? You know, where, is it just the theory behind how the, the mechanism of action that the drugs work? Or why exactly are we doing it? Because it makes me wonder, all right, if you took it in the placebo population, if they took the time to start an IV and they wasted the time on pushing that placebo and the placebo wasn't far off from the amio or the lidocaine. I mean, what would it be like if you just did nothing and you just focused on compressions? Yeah. So, you know, I think some, that's a great question. Uh, and I think perhaps some of the, uh, reasoning there is, well, this is, and it's very interesting that they went with refractory V-fib VTAC. And it's so important that they did because, Perhaps chest compressions aren't working. Mm. That's why we're in refractory VFib or VTAC. Uh, now, one of the the things that we're understanding now more recently with VFib VTAC is maybe it's not an inability to defibrillate. Maybe it's a coronary perfusion problem. So if you look at what we've been doing uh, in in some of the places uh, like Minnesota, especially. Uh, with Dr. Yiannopoulos and eCPR, so refractory VFib, VTAC, patients getting put on ECMO. They're also doing this out in California and Michigan and other areas uh, of the country. They're doing this very aggressively. Uh, so for maybe it's not about the antiarrhythmic. Mm. Maybe it's about maybe it's not about the chest compressions. Maybe it's just about absolutely taking over. So I don't, I don't know. Those are you know that's a that's a really good question. The thing that I think we have to look at too is limitations, uh, limitations of the study. You know, we talked about the consistency and those kinds of things, but one of the things that was interesting and was that the initial call to the EMS drug administration was 19 minutes. You know, there's a lot of things that we look at in cardiac arrest of timing. Mm. So maybe, could it be, it's not 
actually the antiarrhythmic, could you be going at, once you reach a certain point, could it be that it doesn't matter? So what you're saying is the priorities, if switch up the priorities, like exactly. you were talking earlier. It, but what I'm saying as a hypothesis, maybe that's the reason. What if it is after 15 minutes, it doesn't matter what you give. Mm. What if we gave it at 12 minutes, then would it matter which antiarrhythmic? We don't know. That wasn't that wasn't that wasn't specifically studied as a variable to say. Let's give it at ten minutes. Let's give it at nineteen minutes, and let's see what happens. So that I think is another. It could possibly be an important thing to study. And they're still pushing epi in these situations, correct? Correct. Everything was ACLS protocol mm. except when you got to the antiarrhythmic, you gave one of these yeah. three. The other thing I got thinking about was a patient comes in, yeah, they got their 450 of Amio, no, they're, they're two boluses, they got their you know, 150 of Lido or whatever they got. If they still didn't have a pulse and then they got into the ER, how did the ER treat them? Yeah. And that was not part of the study, so that was not going to be consistent. Mm. So if they got ROSC after they got to the ER, they were likely going to get a specific type of treatment. That, I mean, that's another, you, you know, you just can't treat, the, you can't bring the patient through that entire protocol from EMS also to the ER. Um, the outcomes differed great, uh, not greatly, but they actually were different in witnessed versus unwitnessed. Mm, I didn't even think about that. So those are, you know, those are all, those are all interesting things to look at. So, you know, you have to start somewhere. Uh, this was a very well-designed trial. The methods uh, that they did were very good. Uh, I think the results were consistent. There was, there were a few little things there that may have, you know, not necessarily statistical significance that did weren't statistically significant, but I don't think necessarily tr changed the outcome of the trial. Um, and so then I think you just kind of go to, you know, opinions. So here, you know, I've got, I've got really two opinions on this. One is, I think we need to study this more. Uh, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, th when thinking back to, uh, Dr. Uh, Benjamin Abella out of, um, uh, Pen uh, Pen University of Pennsylvania, who is big with hypothermia when he came, when I heard him give a talk uh, with us here on 36 versus 33 degrees or you know, what should we be doing with targeted temperature management, his thing was, well, we know targeted temperature manage works, management works, we may not know the dose yet. Mm. And so we gotta have to study that. So maybe we don't know the timing. Dr. Gordon Avey published out of uh, the INCAR, uh, International Cardiac Arrest Registry, that the incidence of epi given less than 10, in 10 minutes into the arrest and greater than 10 minutes into the arrest was a big difference on survival. So mm. maybe it's not the actual medication, maybe we just need to be giving it earlier or in different ways, different doses, you know, amiodarone really was not ever intended for cardiac arrest. It was intended to be given slowly, uh, you know, 150 milligrams over 10 minutes. Absolutely. We just bolus them because we, you know, we think that maybe that's, uh, that's a good idea. The other opinion I would say with this is I'm very uncomfortable with cardiac arrest when we ever only study one thing. Yeah. Anytime we're looking for that silver bullet in cardiac arrest, I think we're going to have 
difficulties. You know, we try, we've tried this with Lucas and the paramedic two trial. We've tried this with other, you know, other different ways that we've done uh, cardiac arrest. Cardiac arrest is so specific to each patient that if we're looking for that one silver bullet, we're going to have issues. If we think that it's amiodarone that saves your life and we don't do chest compressions, you know, then the amiodarone's not going to matter or the right. lidocaine's not going to matter. It doesn't matter what you do after a certain point. Yeah. And, and you have a system of organs that have failed now. You're going to need a system of treatment to get them to get them all going again. Correct. And, you know, we're also studying a thing that's way later in our chain of survival. If those first few things in the chain of survival didn't work, then it doesn't matter. Now, again, that's where you get over 4,000 patients so you can have all of that consistent. So you do get a group of ideal or what you would consider ideal, you know, witnessed bystander CPR, uh, early EMS defibrillation, mm. early EMS care, uh, and that, and that kind of, uh, those kind of things. So, you know, I think this was a great start. It was a great trial. It certainly is not a time for practice change. Certainly no. is not a time to say, well, we just shouldn't give anything. I think we're going to be very careful uh, to state that this is one trial, as good as it was. It was one trial, uh, and it should not cause practice change yet. But what it should do is cause us to maybe change this up and study it in a different way. Absolutely. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.